Welcome to the new Space India podcast, a bi-weekly talk show that exclusively discusses space activities in India. There are hundreds of books that discusses international space programs such as the ones from NASA or even the ones from Russia and the fame characters such as Werner von Braun or Sergei Korolev. However, when it comes to the India space program, there is very little outside literature apart from the academic stuff that talks about the India space program exclusively and discusses the intricacies from a perspective of a general audience. My guest in this episode of the New Space India podcast is the Manchester-based Indian origin blogger and author Kurbir Singh, who runs AstroTalk UK, a non-profit platform through which he provides his perspective on various space activities around the world. Kurbir recently published a book on India's space program where he had a comprehensive look starting from the origins of the space program to the current trends and most recently he has worked on an exclusive book on one of the earliest indian rocket innovators stephen smith who is experimenting with rockets in the early 1930s and who stands as a forgotten indian rocket pioneer you can read kurbir's writings on astrotalkuk.org or reach him on his twitter handle at Kurbir Singh. We recorded this podcast on the day of the Chandrayaan 2 landing attempt by ISRO and I am extremely thankful to the Takshashila Institution for lending me their studio to record this episode. Gurbir, welcome to this episode of the New Space India podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to visiting Bangalore and also getting on the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be here despite the famous Bangalore traffic. I've been following your work for a while. You've turned into a space writer, you know, who's uh, written now, you know, prominently on the Indian space program, interviewed a lot of people, created a lot of uh, buzz around the international media and interest in the Indian space program. And from your career, you know, I've learned that you are a teacher before and also a cybersecurity expert. So what makes a teacher and a cybersecurity expert into a space writer? <laughs> well, none of this is planned. Um, it all happened bit by bit by accident. So I spent the first 10 years after I graduated as a teacher, I used to work in, uh, in a college teaching IT. Um, then I think at the beginning of this millennia, uh, I moved into the private sector. It started off as uh, um, an IT um, technician, a third, uh, third line support technician. In those days, we had the old computers, physical large, very heavy, very expensive computers. They go into big racks. Um, and then whenever you wanted to upgrade them, you'd have to go and buy some more and put them into the racks. Very different to what we have today, which is mostly cloud computing and software. Everything's done pretty much online. But I started off with uh, these server farms. In fact, one of the very first projects I worked on was for the, um, the Department of the Government in the UK, and uh, it was a, a, a server farm in a data center based near where I lived in Manchester in England, and that was a secondary, uh, in those days, the backup and resilient solution physically meant you had to build another data center, have physically duplicate everything. So I was taken on as one of the technicians who helped build that. And then, in fact, at that time, this particular uh, solution had the largest number of terminal servers that any project had had before. 
So it's quite an interesting project. Um, but after that, I moved gradually into software side, uh, developing solutions, um, and then moved into IT um, security. I think that my first job title was probably an IT security coordinator, then manager. Um, and then I actually specialized in um, cyber security. So I'm not a cyber security expert. Uh, my job title was a cyber security consultant. And actually, I, I went to work for a company called Talus, a company that you and most people in space know. Uh, and that was my introduction to Talus. I knew they did spacecraft. They, they built a lot of the um, uh, Galileo uh, satellite navigation constellation, um, Mars 2020, uh, the Copernicus constellation, many projects come out of Talus. So when I started working for Talus, I thought, great, I'll get into cybersecurity and then I'll move over to the space sector. It wasn't quite like that. Um, didn't quite work out like that because all of the space-related work is done really out of France and Italy. There's very little in, uh, in the UK. In fact, the, uh, the only space-related activity Talus had in, uh, in the UK was in Belfast, which is miles away in the island of Ireland, in Northern Ireland, where they were developing some iron engines, which would have been interesting still, but um, nevertheless, my um, time with Talus was in cybersecurity, working for some of the MOD, Ministry of Defense uh, programs, nuclear. Um, very interesting, um, fascinating, but a lot of travel, a lot of work uh, away from home. So I've taken some time out. Um, I'm uh, focusing on my writing and uh, 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 but I'm still doing some consulting in cybersecurity as well. This fascination of, of space and so on then was your time during Thales and looking at the work environment there. Yeah, um, well actually my Yuri Gagarin book I wrote, I wrote in uh, 2011, beginning of 2011. And it's a peculiar reason, I've never really thought of myself as a writer. So in 2010, I discovered that Yuri Gagarin, the very first man in space, had gone into space on 12th of April 1961 and then three months later he came to Manchester and I was so astounded to hear that because I was in Manchester and I never knew about that. I'd grown up most of my adult life in Manchester so I thought well there must be a book that tells me about it and I looked everywhere um, and I couldn't find one and then I realized that actually it's going to be the 50th anniversary soon. It would be a good time to have a book so I started tentatively trying to do some research and then it ended up in a, in a project where I did do the research. I met so many people who actually met him um, or saw him and I got their testimonies and I went to some of the places where Gregorian went. Um, sadly, now that book was published in 2011, quite a few of those people aren't around anymore. Uh, I spoke to a, a very uh, well-known uh, veteran BBC correspondent called uh, Reg Turnell. Um, he lived down south of England and near him also lived this guy called um, Eric Brown who uh, was a fighter pilot who well known in aviation in aviation history in, in, in the UK um, and Eric Winkle Brown is um, um, the only person who actually had a one-to-one -one conversation with Gagarin when Gagarin was in London so I had a, a conversation with uh, Eric Brown. Um, so I put all of these things together and published the book. And uh, the, a lot of the information that um, I gathered is actually on my blog. 
And so although I started off blogging in 2008, the idea was to do really what uh, you uh, and many of the people who um, join in on, uh, on Newspace have been doing, is to share information and learn about. Really, learn is the key thing for me. Um, and uh, so when I was uh, learning about um, Gagarin, I thought, well, I could combine all that, put it into a book. So you can go and buy the book or just listen to pretty much everything online for free. That's uh, quite fascinating because um, it shows that if you are interested in, in something, you can pursue it and uh, and switch kind of, you know, develop a, over time, develop a keen interest on it and take it further on. So you've done this book and the, the Yuri Gagarin book itself was on your free time or? Yeah. So oh, both of my main books. Um, so the um, 2011 book uh, pu published in 2011, Yuri Gagarin, was a book. I think the key thing about that was this personal connection. Gagarin had been invited to, to Manchester by the um, Union of Foundry Workers. And they had an office in Manchester, and their office. This one of the. This was in 1960s, and it's one of these old brick offices where they actually had their name actually into the brickwork. And um, when I looked at some of the old archives, I thought, I wonder if that's still there. So I actually went to the building, and that building still has that um, name in the brickwork itself. And I used to walk past this building every day when I used to go to school, when I went to the Polytechnic, as it was called then. And that really is the, the motivation. It was a personal connection to a place where I knew very well and space and uh, space flight, which I had an interest in. And that really what motivated me to do the research, to write the book that didn't exist. Same story for the book that I published in 2017, the Indian Space Program. Because in... Um, the, uh, you know, India uh, and Israel do some terrific stuff in space. When it comes to marketing, they're, what they do and publicizing what they do is not very good. So getting hold of information, particularly when you're not in India, was very, very difficult. So I did do, <laughs> do some research and the idea of the book was really, one, again, learn about what India is doing. And in that process, I had to learn, to, uh, had to uh, speak to people. I made three research trips to, to India. I came to, um, I visited um, one of your earlier guests, uh, Wing Commander Rakesh Sharma. Uh, I visited his house in Kanur to interview him for the Human Spaceflight Pro um, chapter. I went to um, Sikkim and uh, Calcutta to do some research around Stephen Smith and the rocket testing that he was conducting during and um, between the First World War. Um, and I also visited uh, Vikram Sarabhai Space Centre in Kerala. And of course, uh, here in Bangalore, I made several visits. And every time I came, I was very fortunate to meet up with um, Professor URL. Uh, he is perhaps the one man that um, I, I have a great deal to owe because he made time for me each of the three visits I made. And I sat uh, for hours in his office. I spoke to him. He gave me uh, information or gave me documents to help me learn the answers to the questions that he couldn't pointed me to people. Uh, he's an incredibly generous, humble uh, human being. And I was very sad to hear that he passed away in 2017, just before I published that book. 
Yeah, and you said you started off in 2008 with your blog. The, uh, 2008 was around the same time that uh, ISRO kicked off all the Chandrayaan and you know the major buzz around the international news. Mm-hmm. So, and was that a coincidence or? Uh, I think it was. I I, I just uh, um, been thinking about doing uh, uh, blogging, but uh, technically, I think by then the. Uh, Uh, open source tools were available. Uh, I do because I do this in my free time. I don't uh, have anybody uh, on my blog. It's called astrotalkuk.org. Uh, I don't have any subscribers. Uh, nobody has to log in. There are no adverts, and you don't have to join any particular uh, mailing list or anything. It's open to the public for free. So when I'm doing this, uh, I have to keep all the costs low. <laughs> Make sure I never pay any of my guests. um and uh, um it's something that about 2008 wordpress was uh, uh the platform that i used was available in a form that in a version that was really, really relatively easy to use um but of course uh, podcasts have since then become even more po- popular but all of this work uh, all my astronomy and all of my writing i've been doing on the side in in, in part of uh, alongside with uh, with my full time job Uh, however as of november last year i have taken some time out now so my current book which will be published later we can talk about that in in a near the end uh, is something that i'm doing for the first time when i don't have a full time job yeah quite a transition probably takes 10 years for such a transition to happen you can see that <laughs> so when you did the book on gagarin mm-hmm. um when you started off blogging 2008 2011 the book on gagarin mm-hmm. was the indian space program uh, in your foresight and how did this love for the indian space program start hmm. so uh, i should say i've been uh, interested in space ever since like most people are as kids um i remember building a telescope when i was a teenager and my mum uh, you know i grew up i was born in punjab i left uh, when i was very young and my both my parents when they saw me building this telescope they thought i'd gone mad They, they genuinely they, it was just something so far removed from their reality from their world um but um uh, so i've had a, an interest in space going back for many many years um and then when the opportunity came by 2008 you know i had uh, an int- uh, some technical expertise and experience and knew how to use some of the developing online tools so it blogging seemed to be quite a a, a new way of developing my interest in space mainly the other reason is if you live in the UK weather is really bad uh, if you are doing any observational astronomy it's very unpredictable unfortunately it rains a lot very cloudy so you can never bank on doing some astronomy or observing when you schedule it so um, writing about it going online is a much more um, satisfying uh, experience than than um doing some practical observing and then so you stumbled upon space uh, as in, in, in the indian space program or yeah so uh, because of my connections with india i um uh, 2007 is the year that uh, india launched the uh, space recovery experiment and on the back of that um i think it's very successful it's the only first time for india to send something up there and then recover it after a week uh in a splash down uh the vehicle now actually is in the uh, space museum in uh, in Vikram Sarovar Space Center that um i didn't appreciate this at the time but that motivated a lot of interest uh in uh, uh in india from various other parties particularly the us 
and uh, and uh, Russia. So Russia, India, with the success and the support from the foreign external um, uh, countries, they thought, well, we can actually do um, a lot more now. It somehow put the foot down on the accelerator, on the gas pedal for the Indian space program, because at that time, China had already decided to go to the, to the moon. And in fact, um, China got to the moon in uh, their first spacecraft in 2007, India did it uh, 2018, just a year later. So this motivation with the uh, that unspoken about competition between India and China and the support from the external well-known space powers, I think did accelerate Indian space program. I was aware of it, but I don't think it did have the international profile that the Indian space program has now. So that was my motivation. Uh, so there was a lot happening. Uh, PSLV was pretty much uh, um, operational. The INSAT satellite program was in, in place, providing a huge amount of data by then. Uh, and in fact, at that time, India did announce then, so this is 2007, eight, that they would want to go forward with an, um, a human spaceflight program as well. It's taken a long time, but that's uh, coming uh, to fruition soon. So that kind of um, um, activities uh, really did help um, get my interest developed into um, focusing on India, and it was, it's, a lot had happened. Many people didn't know about, didn't know about, and a lot more was planned, which was really quite exciting. So I thought it'd be a good time to write about it. Absolutely, and uh, from what I know from ISRO literature or the Indian Space Program literature in itself, there is very little uh, literature from a historic perspective. Uh, for the past, you know, 50 years or so. And only in the recent times have we seen several of the ISRO early engineers, uh, early people involved, coming out with their uh, kind of memoirs, mm. right? Uh, but then if you look back to even 2010, mm. you could have read a lot of technical papers, uh, mm. a lot of experience-based papers, mission experience papers, mm -hmm. uh, outcomes on mission experience and the applications. Mm -hmm. A lot of that kind of literature but not really the kind uh, which would be like, a, I don't know, like a rocket boys of India yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Right? So it's yeah. not to that extent. And that was really quite interesting. When I first, the first draft of my book, I passed it along to some fellow authors who were writing about space and I said, what do you think of this? And now most of these are outside India. Um, and they said, oh, well, this is quite interesting. It does tell us about the space program, but I don't know about the, the history really. And I don't know about the people, um, so and, and the institutions. And, and India has a very unique place because it was oc occupied as a colony of the British for such a long time. So I did write about the um, early institutions and in uh, like the IAC and the uh, Institute for the Cultivation of Science and the uh, people like C. V. Raman, Magnat Saha. Um, there was. Uh, of course, um, Homi Baba, fascinating stories in themselves. And all of this added to the, so if you look at the book, it's quite thick now. It didn't intend it to be like that. And I was really, um, it's charming to hear from your previous guest, Sushmita Mahanti, who said that uh, she knew a lot of these people, you know, Chitnis, uh, Pramad Kale, uh, and, and I spoke with Rafal Bavsa. A lot of these individuals, who had done the work in the early days. And when uh, Sushmita was talking about them, and she'd say something like, um, um, 
Pal uncle, Vietnamese uncle, you know, somebody very delightful. And, and it's a fascinating story, a terrific uh, uh, episode on, uh, on her story. Um, so I, I, it was something which I didn't know anything about. And I think a lot of the other people who uh, didn't know about this, I'm thinking mostly about outside India, but surprisingly, not many people knew about it on the inside of India too. So all of that is in one place in rather a large book. You know, tell me about the challenges when you started collecting all the information, you know, because being within India for us, even being Indians living in India, sometimes it's a challenge because you don't have uh, open access very easily. Um, it's of course now today, the walls of Israel are very secure in terms of yeah. security yeah. and access and, and also the ability to share information more freely has some limitations. Mm. So with all of this, you know, what was your experience? So um, it, it was being um, living outside uh, India uh, was both uh, a challenge and a, and a benefit. And, and being uh, of Indian descent, my name, you know, Gurubir Singh, uh, very Indian name. Um, then when I used to speak to people, they could hear that I was not local. Um, on the one hand, I needed to, because I'm a a non-Indian citizen, it automatically prohibited me access to various places just because I was not an Indian. And then on the other hand, when I got to know people and they, I could some, if they took the time to look at what I was trying to do, they found it really, I found them really to be quite supportive. And that was certainly the case with Professor URL. Um, but when I would go to any center and I went to ISAC and I went to the SSC, um, I went to Bailalu, every time I went there, it was always a hurdle of doing security checks. And, and I'm sure that even if uh, uh, you're not um, a non-Indian, uh, if you are an Indian, you still have security. It's part of the everyday processes these days. Uh, but yes, I think in, uh, in the end, once people appreciated what I was trying to do, they were very supportive. But in the, in the end, the criticism I have for, for Israel is that uh, um, they don't really publicize well uh, what uh, they do. And uh, it's really terrific to hear that they've now got um, uh, a public audience arena where people can go and watch. It's taken such a long time to get this going, although from announcement to actually making it operational was really quick. And I think a lot of uh, the work that uh, you and many of the colleagues in the New Space India uh, have been doing have really been uh, crucial in getting that done, certainly. Yeah, especially with the, the onset of social media, the, all the tools are present for ISRO to adopt. So that's, I think, a major uh, change to the approach of a legacy space agency like NASA or somewhere, where they had no such tools to just use them to, to reach to an audience, I guess. Well, uh, the, the, the tools are there and they've been there for a while. Certainly, sure, they weren't there for Chandrayaan-1 in 2008. And that's why with uh, the Mars Orbiter mission in 2014 and the Chandrayaan mission now, and I think what's going to be happening in a few days at the time of recording with Chandrayaan 2 and uh, now in lunar orbit, the orbiter is separated. Uh, it's going to be going down to the surface on Saturday. Uh, that will be picked up by social media in a way that Chandrayaan 1 could not have done. And I think uh, a lot of the work in the media space is being done by people who are doing it uh, out of their own time, non-Israel people, and I'm thinking specifically of New Space India and what you guys do here, but also the Reddit uh, subreddit on uh, uh, Israel, uh, some 
fascinating input uh, uh, you see there, uh, along with the NASA forums. Um, so all that information, because of the, this media age, uh, means Israel will be uh, showcased uh, in a way that uh, it couldn't have been done uh, in the past. But my <laughs> polite criticism for Israel is still that really they need to invest more in, uh, in their publicity and public relations uh, area. And, you know, they, they have a YouTube channel now, very little on there still. Um, they, they really need to revamp that and, and uh, um, increase uh, the productivity and the engagement that they, they could so easily do. And there also ties back to all the you know support that they get from the crowd as well, because ultimately the taxpayers have to agree to for you to get more money as a public uh, institution, mm -hmm. especially one that is doing research and development. Mm -hmm. So I guess it is also in their own interest to reach to a wider audience. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know here in in India, there's such a large, young, talented uh, population. It's in their interest. Um, uh, Again, going back to one of your previous guests, uh, Sushmita Mahanti, she was saying, you know, it's the um, uh, traditional uh, Indian bureaucratic approach. Uh, they just they could do with um, uh, a revamp in how it's uh, managed and publicised. And you know, of all the countries who have space programs, India is the one that can perhaps benefit its citizens the most very quickly. That is its history. That's what it's been doing. And it's this, there's far more to, far more for it to do. Uh, and I'm just thinking, you know, the satellite navigation program, it's come to an end. The seven satellites are up there op uh, operating, providing um, GPS services for, or navigational services for every, all across India. And yet, in terms of the outside, the security services, there isn't really much um, exploitation of that now remarkable uh, service that exists. So time will tell. So when you were doing your book on the Indian space program, were there any anecdotes that you found really to be funny or never to be captured? <laughs> uh, it's quite a few uh, few years ago when uh, when I did this. Um, but the um, I think the people that um, uh, I met or tried to trace down and eventually met and spoke to. Um, some of the ones were quite memorable were um, Professor Blamont. Uh, he was, uh, uh, he, he's French, he helped in uh, the early days with the uh, Vikram Sarabhai and uh, uh, getting the Indian space program off the ground. He was the one who provided the payload for the very first Nike Apache rocket that launched from Thumba in 1963, which is, I think, the start of the Indian space program. And he was in um, working in, in America, and his one of his students, uh, Praful Bafsa, who now lives in Pune, um, was his student doing some high atmospheric balloon experiments. And uh, it was through him that uh, Praful, uh, that uh, Professor Blamont met up with Vikram Sarabhai and then set up this um, initial launch with this Nike Apache and sodium vapor um, experiment. But it was this beginning of what turned out to be a very long um, support that France gave to India uh, for its Indian space program for many years. And when speaking to Prof Professor Blamont, oh, he speaks French, of course, is his first language, but he was very, um, and this is about five years ago, 
Um, he was in Paris and I was in the UK, so this was a conversation on the phone. He was um, um, very um, endearing and very highly respecting of uh, Vikram Sarabhai because of what starting point Vikram Sarabhai had and where he took the Indian Space Programme in his very short lifetime. And so he was very bold and he said, oh yes, he was, he was very uh, cheeky. He would play off, Vikram Sarabhai would play off everybody against everybody else just so that he could get for India what he thought India needed to get that very beginnings of the programme. Um, and without that kind of leadership and bold challenges, you know, when you have absolutely nothing to, uh, to, to, to build on, the, the, the square one, where your starting point is, he was actually absolutely the beginning. And uh, to, for Vikram Sarabhai to have got that um, program going and have the vision, he had a lot of problems, he wasn't perfect, but to get the program going uh, from that starting point was incredibly remarkable. And one of the uh, slides I read in uh, one of the things that was published, he, Vikram Sarabhai, in about 1962, this is before uh, the very first launch, he had a, uh, a chat, he had a, in fact, he had one of these old projectors. You, you're not old enough to remember these. We actually had slides and you put them in a projector. And So he had a meeting organized um, and at that time um, he, he got um, the Prime Minister's office involved and uh, although uh, Indira Gandhi wasn't the Prime Minister at the time, she said to him, uh, is this something that we can actually do? So he's talking about building um, uh, an Earth observation, a constellation of Earth observation satellites to help the farmers in Kerala and to help identify um, coconut wilt, wilt disease, which they did an experiment with helicopters uh, and uh, Hasselblad cameras, just looking down and seeing if they could spot diseased trees from the air. And that experiment proved to be successful. And then he took the bold step, visionary step, and said, look, if we can do this from a few meters high, a few hundred meters high in helicopters, think of what we could do from space. And, uh, but everybody, and Prime Minister's office, he was saying, is this something we can really achieve? And he said, well, I have some friends, let's see what we can do. And that led up eventually to uh, the Indian space program. So I actually met up with uh, Blamo when he was in India the last time, mm -hmm. um, and he received one of the highest uh, civilian awards uh, for having cooperated between India and France, or built this cooperation between India and mm -hmm. France. And uh, very funnily, I asked him about what was his opinion about Srikram Sarabhai, and he said, look, um, uh, personally, I would say that at, during that time, I would have said uh, Vikram Sarabhai was, was some sort of a, a magician or, you know, some sort of a, <laughs> even a comedian in that sense by mm -hmm. telling this vision of how, uh, you know, India is going to leapfrog yeah. the developing worlds. And he mm -hmm. was saying, you know, look, when, I, when you visit a fishing village of Thumba uh, yeah. in southern Kerala, and you're among all these fishermen doing lay things <laughs> and this guy here and uh, who's a scientist from India is telling that these the fishing village here will be leapfrogged into a, a launch base or something like that. He must be nuts. <laughs> and he, he did say that, you know, yeah. when, when you think about it in perspective of 60 years, yeah. 
he said, you know, he was probably true because uh, given the revolution of uh, telecommunications in India, mm -hmm. access to so many things with uh, digital internet and, you know, so many other areas mm -hmm. where India has really kind of leapfrogged in that sense. Mm -hmm. And he was giving examples of them saying, you know, in certain aspects, yeah, India has definitely leapfrogged in that mm -hmm. uh, sense. Uh, and this leapfrog term is something that Nehru used as well. Uh, Nehru was... Um, uh, very much uh, a man of science and he knew and then he decided that uh, once his administration was set up that um, science was was going to be uh, what drove the future of uh, of india and i think he, he says somewhere that um, the uh, science is the answer to the backwardness and poverty that we have in india and if it's going to be a developed nation it will have to be done through science, and he incorporated the uh, the temper of science, scientific temper, into the Indian constitution. Uh, despite the fact that he, every time you looked at him, he wore the traditional Hindu traditional uh, um, clothes. He wasn't really all that of a religious guy. Um, he's very much a man of science, and he brought into his administration people like Homi Baba and Vikram Sarabhai, who told who he knew could deliver the science. Um, uh, the scientific future for India that he had uh, envisaged. After you published your book, uh, the first book on the Indian space program, mm -hmm. was how was the reception within India and outside of India? Um, the the I, I think the quantity of reception was it's not a great deal. Um, so I don't get that many comments. Now I, sh I should say I don't actually always uh, solicit them, but. Um, uh, the kind of reviews I've had on Amazon, all been very positive, incredibly positive, five-star ratings. Uh, I've been very impressed. Uh, I did expect uh, some comments when I've been doing some talks uh, here and there. Um, the only negative comment I think I've had was uh, that um, in, in the book is called The Indian Space Program. And uh, I, I use this in my head. Uh, space is just one of the ways that India is making its journey from the developing world into the developed world. There's many of us, but it's basis to one of them. And the subtitle was uh, India's incredible journey from the third world towards the first. And the only comment that I had was about that subtitle. A lot of people <laughs> who quite uh, uh, um, supportive of India. They reckon that India is already in the first world. They weren't quite happy about suggesting that India was still a third world country, which was quite interesting. Yeah. And I'm quite positive about that as well, because in many ways, of course, India is and has been for many years. Okay, so now, you know, you have your, uh, the book out and uh, you then catch on to the next thing and you want to uh, do, and then you're now researching on this book on uh, Stephen Smith, who was India's, uh, one of the early Indian... Rocket pioneers. Mm. Um, so I came across Stephen Smith, and despite his name, uh, he is an Indian. He's an Anglo-Indian. Uh, he was uh, born to um, um, an English man and I'm guessing an Anglo-Indian uh, mother. Um, and uh, that's why if you see him, his skin color is a bit like mine, brown, black hair. Um, but uh, he sounds um, English. Um, he was brought up uh, as a Catholic and um, he grew up in the Anglo-Indian community of Calcutta. 
uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, he's never left uh, uh, India, uh, although his sister, who um, uh, was a little older than him, uh, left when she was quite young and she went up to back to India, uh, back to England. Between 1934 and uh, 1944, he spent quite some time testing what uh, was then named, uh, termed as rocket mail. So uh, when I was doing the research for the uh, Indian Space Program book, I'd ask people when I would go to the ISAC or Victim Satellite Space Center, meet these directors, um, said, have you heard of Stephen Smith? And they said, no. And a lot of people still haven't. And in the, because of his interest in rockets, um, initially, rockets really came with a view to going into space in the late 1920s. Some of the earliest rockets that were being built for space were built in Russia in the late 1920s. It sounds far-fetched today, but the rocket technology, Russia was way ahead. Uh, people like um, Robert Goddard in, uh, in America was doing testing of liquid fuel uh, engines. Uh, and in, the, um, in, in England and in Europe, there were many individuals, so these weren't organizations, not governments, but individuals and groups of individuals who decided that, you know, this is still about two decades after the aeroplane. So it's quite revolutionary, um, but they were living through revolutionary times that rocket transport would be the new way, uh, be much faster than aeroplanes could, uh, could transport something. And one of the, um, I suppose, real pioneer of uh, rocket mail was a guy called uh, Friedrich Schmiedel in Vienna, or just outside Vienna in, in, in Austria. And he demonstrated that you could use rockets to transport uh, mail from one village to another. And uh, in the Alps, in the Alpen, Alpine region of uh, Austria, it's quite difficult to get from one part of uh, the country to another. So rockets seem to be quite, quite a good and efficient way of transport. And there was another guy called Gerhard Zucker in uh, uh, in Germany, who also done, uh, demonstrated rockets um, transporting mail. So although mail was the, the product, what they were really trying to do was to demonstrate the transport capacity of rockets. Um, and mail was just an easy thing, but also they do, did do some um, high-altitude testing of um, getting measurements of um, um, de information from the pressure temperature variations in the um, higher stratosphere. So that's an area that was very little known about in the early 1930s. And another area where rockets were uh, being used was in the early days of uh, films. You know, even today, uh, Hollywood is always a blockbuster when rockets are involved. And uh, in Germany in particular, and this is at a time when arts were really well developed in, in Germany, um, there was a film called Frau in Mond. You'll be familiar with, uh, with your time in Germany. Um, it's developed by a, a guy called Fritz Lang. And that also had, because it was a film, it had a terrific uh, reach in the population. So it brought up the idea of rockets and the feasibility of rockets for transport. And in um, uh, these three ways, rocket mail, doing genuine research in high altitude uh, atmosphere, and the media in films, um, rockets demonstrated that there was some use. 
So the because uh, Gerhard Zucker did some experiments in England, I remember uh, at this time Britain, uh, India is a colony of Britain, he saw these uh, tests that were taking place in, in England. Stephen Smith decided to essentially duplicate them in India. And the benefit of using mail was that uh, the philatelic uh, societies around the world, stamp collectors, huge fans of collecting. And rocket mails became a terrific collector's thing, which meant that he could um, close some covers, shoot them up in a rocket, and then sell them for collectors. And that's how he funded himself. Um, that developed into um, um, something more substantial. He did uh, do rockets, uh, conducted experiments from ships to the shore, shore to ship at night time. Uh, he did, went up to Sikkim twice and did some tests there in the undulating hills and mountain regions of, uh, of Sikkim. He got involved with, uh, he got very high level people involved in his experiments. He got the King of Sikkim involved uh, as part of the stamps and covers he collected. He sent them to the uh, to Buckingham Palace, the King uh, George V at the time, who was a bit of a collector. Uh, he also wrote, eventually wrote to an MP in London trying to get some funding for his rocket experiments. He didn't get it. Um, he had in the uh, end, he gave up trying to get some support. He approached the then military authorities in India. So this is uh, approaching World War II late 1930s, uh, 39, uh, and in the end, although he got some traction initially, they didn't really fund him. Uh, they essentially exploited him. He didn't get, didn't make much headway, um, but he believed in the idea of using rockets to transport food and medicine really as a, a much more useful uh, source, uh, purpose for rockets rather than uh, mail, because he lived in Calcutta, you know, we have monsoons and flooding, earthquakes and very bad weather from time to time and things like this, rockets can be a terrific aid in times of emergency. And in the end he um, did try in uh, about late 1944 to develop um, alternative forms of propulsion. So far he just used uh, black powder, gunpowder type, solid fuel propulsion mechanisms. But in 1944 he used compressed gas and he also used um, com sorry, compressed air and gas. And he you combined multi-stage rockets, so he would have rockets that would take off in compressed air, use um, compressed gas for horizontal propulsion and then perhaps have a dry powder where they could get even further. And his the reasoning was, he writes, um, that um, if rockets launch using compressed uh, air or gas, then nobody can see where they're being launched from. So he's thinking in military terms, even in those days. Um, but despite this, this is perhaps his most technologically challenging innovations. Most of his rockets uh, were not anything like the rockets we have today. But then again, we are talking about in the early 1930s. Um, he had uh, been offered, um, he made a very long and sustained and deep friendship with um, a fellow uh, philatelist. He was uh, based in, Austria, uh, in Switzerland called Dr. Robert Paganini. 
They both started off uh, communicating by letter in 1925. At that time, um, they were interested only in airmail, collections of airmails. But eventually, through rocket mail and their friendship, um, they developed into something much more um, substantial relationship. And I really only got the idea of writing the book or making the book worthwhile when I discovered that Paganini had kept all the letters that Stephen Smith had kept him, had sent him from 1925 till 1950 when Paganini died. And in those letters you can see in his own words what Stephen Smith's thoughts are, what he's trying to do. And he is um, a very Christian uh, in his beliefs and he's trying to do the right thing for the, to relieve the, the poverty of the people that he sees around him. He helps children in his vicinity. He adopted a couple of uh, girls that he called his daughters. Uh, he also, uh, in his letters, talks about trying to um, facilitate what the military was trying to do for him uh, or do with him. In the end, he decided through frustration that they weren't really making him, um, they were only just taking stuff from him, not giving him anything. And in the end, he makes this intriguing comment in a letter to Paganini that uh, he's been offered, uh, uh, offered a role for his uh, experience in services by somebody. And he says, I can't tell you who they are, so I'm suspecting that this is now 1945, just after the war, that there are lots of British, uh, perhaps Australian, New Zealanders, and certainly American soldiers and after the war they gradually dissipate, dissipate and go back to their own countries and I suspect that he's been offered um, some sort of a, uh, a job with uh, a military organization which is outside India because he's so frustrated that he can't get any make any headway inside India and he writes to Nehru he's actually trying to contact uh, the highest officials uh, official offices in in India. But, you know, by 1947-1948, Nehru has lots more on his plate. So he doesn't, I can't see any evidence of any responses, but uh, uh, it's a very tragic story because um, Paganini, after uh, about 25 years of this relationship where he's supporting him in many ways, including occasionally financially, when Paganini dies, he leaves Smith, somebody who's never met, never spoken to, a quarter of his will. And that's in December 1950. And two months later, Smith himself dies. Wow. So the Smith, the Smith story seems to be like almost two or three generations from, uh, or even more, uh, to the Tipu story. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that was the other thing that struck me. Because you had Tipu, 1799, when he's defeated, and some of his rockets then go to England, and they're used to develop the rockets that uh, are used in the Napoleonic Wars and the First War against America. Um, and, and in India, uh, there just doesn't seem to be any record of development of any rockets uh, here uh, until uh, Israel. 1963, very first launch. And yet, there is this story right in the middle, well, in during the Second World War, of the uh, story of Stephen Smith and Stephen Smith all alone, fighting against bureaucracy, the military authorities, not making any headway. But um, the story that comes out from the Paganini collection uh, is a story that uh, he is 
doing testing. Initially, sure, he was motivated by stamp collecting philately, but um, in the end, he decides that a rocket mail as a form of transport is something that is, has a real future, which we all now, now know is the case, but it was the development of rockets in, uh, in Europe, particularly in Germany, and the V1 and V2 uh, that uh, really set the scene. And after that, of course, the Cold War started, and then in 1957, the space race, uh, which really where rocket technology grew, and Saturn V for the Apollo program, which has all it has its roots with people like uh, Sergei Korolev, uh, Werner von Braun, Willy Ley. All of these people were Stephen Smith's contemporaries. So do you think that if uh, Stephen Smith had uh, made an attempt to migrate back into uh, England, he would have had a lot of success? It's, it's interesting. I, I'm not quite sure why he didn't. Um, his sister had done. He was registered, or his uh, birth had been registered in England. So, And of course, in those days, um, there was no independent India. He was a citizen of the of the empire, so he could have relatively easily gone to England. Not sure why he chose not to, but certainly, uh, as we find today, you know, the uh, if you develop products in, uh, in the US or Europe, uh, in a high, well-known organization and um, institution, they automatically get a seal of approval, which perhaps is not worthy, but that, that's how it goes. So your point is quite a valid one. He could have got um, much more, made much more headway in his own rocket testing had he gone to England. Why he didn't, don't know. Let's talk about your experience actually covering ISRO events, mm -hmm. <laughs> because I think that's also kind of fascinating to talk about as to how difficult it is sometimes to get hold of, uh, you know, people to give, give you necessary approvals and needed things to actually cover live events. Hmm. So how, how has it been? Uh, I know that you've been attempting to cover the live uh, coverage of uh, Chandrayaan or even visit the center. Mm. Um, so how has been your experience? What do you think uh, needs to be changed in India in terms of policy to enable, you know, writers, uh, press uh, to access, uh, you know, the Indian space program? Well, it's the same point as earlier, really. Um, the um, investment in that side of things that perhaps is not core to Israel uh, needs to be taken more seriously. Um, the public relations aspect, the marketing aspect, use of, multi, uh, of social media, um, there just has to be more people thrown at that, more investment done in that, and taking it, take, take that as a much more serious issue. Um, I remember, uh, I think it was Michael Collins from Apollo 11. He was saying um, the idea of filming Apollo 11 was just an afterthought. It got in the way of them doing their mission. And I see some parallels here. Israel is so focused on doing what they want to do, they don't realize that there are other people watching, other people who could learn from this if doc the information is captured and conveyed to the public uh, in a way that uh, uh, should be done. They have all the tools now. Uh, I'm very quite impressed with the, uh, the Twitter handle. Facebook page. Uh, they have a YouTube channel now. Um, they need to take um, a high-level decision and recognize that this aspect is really serious and engage 
not only with um, uh, the ordinary people of India, um, and, and I think this step of having a visitor site at Sri Harikota is so important, but it should just be a first step. Um, it's um, they, they need to have uh, uh, much more uh, of a, a web presence. The quality and quantity of uh, press releases are, are not uh, uh, regular and consistent. Um, not quite sure how often they change their personnel. But I think that department for public relations needs a revamp. And it can only come, uh, two, re two major decisions uh, have to be taken. One at a very high level, recognition that that's the case. And really, uh, as, as with so many other things, they need to throw more money at it. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, couldn't disagree on that. You know, based on your, uh, uh, with, with all your works now, you know, the two books coming out, mm -hmm. where do you see our gaps that are still there with no information to the public or of interest uh, within the space program? Do you see any things there? Well, I think the, uh, as, as I, I hope the further engagement with the uh, private sector. You know, the, one of the things that's changed over the last 10, 20 years is uh, the um, commercial space sector has now in many ways has taken the lead um, so I'd like to see I suppose it's the antrix element of Israel um, but that everything's very close to um, to the government and I think it uh, needs further opening up in uh, the way of deregulation that uh, uh, India has gone through before uh, particularly in t to do with uh, with space the amount Israel spends um, is a tiny percentage of its GDP. That needs to increase. Israel needs to engage not only with uh, the private sector in, the, in, the U in, in India, but abroad, and also reduce the kind of um, bureaucracy that exists in everything it does. I think the, it's going to be essential uh, if India is going to be competing in, uh, in the commercial open market internationally that it has to be um, engaging more of the private sector and the entrepreneurial spirit that exists it's so widely in India. It's just it's there everywhere. Um, it's the, the organizational and mind, the way it thinks that it has to change. The um, future of uh, not only the Indian space program, but most space programs is a commercial one. And unfortunately, uh, India is very slow in the uptake. There are many signs that it has is doing that. Uh, I think the uh, the last two uh, IRN, IRNSS satellites were commercially built. Um, not sure to what extent they were commercially built, but that's the message that uh, I see. Um, PSLV is supposed to be now uh, externally externalized, and the SSLV will hopefully. Uh, I think that that. Actually, seeing the SSLV, the need for it, shows that Israel is seeing the future for the small satellite industry, for example. So it is branching out. Um, the human spaceflight program that Israel is embarked on, naturally, I think every country should have a human spaceflight program. There should be a lot more investment. But I think in this instance for India, perhaps because of the personnel and the resources and the money, 
that the human spaceflight program is going to um, need, it'll perhaps have a, a negative impact on other aspects of Israel. So, um, if um, uh, Israel needs to just grow a lot, lot, a lot more, not only in terms of personnel and resources. You know, if I think uh, uh, one of the major problems is Shri Hari Kota, terrific, wonderful, but it's just Shri Hari Kota. There should be many more launch sites, not just one. Um, the Chinese have about four in the U.S. There's half a dozen. Um, you do, in order not only for um, redundancy, but you know, for capacity building, you need to have that larger number of resources and increase the number of launches per per year. I think the record for Israel is about seven in one year. It's uh, it's incredible. And I think last year, China leapfrogged everybody with 39 launches in one year. And that's uh, China, which was not traditionally uh, space um, doesn't have a terrific history like the US and Russia has. And if uh, in, in many ways, because China's doing that, I'm hoping that the political motivations will make India do that too. <laughs> so when is your uh, book on Stephen Smith out and how can we grab it? <laughs> um, well, the book has been completed. It's uh, being edited right now. Uh, and I'm hoping that it will be available in all the forms like uh, ebook, paperback and hardback uh, before the end of the year and I'll post some, post some updates uh, onto the group on my blog and the usual uh, social media sources um, once I have a, a publication date. All right. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Good luck uh, with your tour here in India and I hope uh, you know you keep writing about the Indian Space Program and it's always fascinating to read your perspective. Thank you very much and likewise I find not only uh, the uh, perspective that you provide, but everybody else on New Space India and, and various other, usually Indian sources about the Indian space program. Thank you for staying until the end. If you have any suggestions or comments, please write to curator at newspaceindia.com. Please share this podcast episode or the show with any of your family or friends so that there's a wider reach to any space enthusiasts. Until the next episode, it's a goodbye from me.